I mean, I think right now we are in this, you know, period of experimentation. I, I noticed this trend specifically about, you know, 12, 18 months ago where a lot more, um, individuals were taking remote more seriously. I think especially new parents, uh, caregivers, you know, a large percentage of people in the world, especially people over the age of 45 are caring for an aging parent or potentially caring for a sick spouse. So I think in a lot of ways, like remote work is making the workplace a lot more inclusive and human long-term. So I think that that will open up the discussion where as people are working from home due to coronavirus or any other, you know, sort of urgent circumstance that comes up, I think it does give us a little bit more balance, hopefully. Um, but I will say in a lot of ways, like as, as remote work becomes more mainstream, I think that the way companies typically, you know, some of the concerns that companies have long-term is how engaged can employees really be long-term. That's Brianne Kimmel this week on the Lean Startup Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Lean Startup Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs bringing ideas to life from startups to large organizations, governments, and nonprofits. Hello and welcome back to the official Lean Startup Podcast, where we discuss innovation, entrepreneurship, and everything that it takes to create the future of your business. I'm your host, Chris Guest. I'm the CMO at a sleep technology company called Bright Labs. But today's episode is a deep dive into the future of business, or more specifically, the future of work and what it means for all of us, whether we're startups, enterprises, governments, nonprofits, or, or whatever. And also what it means for us individually, as we are employees ourselves, we're managers, and we're also parents. What does this mean for our future? And to talk about it, we have a guest that is so passionate about and so engaged in this topic. She's recently launched a VC firm to support and invest in the startups and entrepreneurs that are creating the future of work. She's the amazing Brianne Kimmel. She's the founder of and managing partner of Work Life Ventures, a future of work focused fund that's investing in seed and series A rounds. Uh, the fund is backed by Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, Matt Matzeo, um, Alexis O'Hanian, Gary Tan, and many other great names, as well as support from the, the founder and CEO of Zoom and the founder and CEO of Envision as well. So as, as I said, really quite amazing. Brianne, welcome and thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. So I've actually been following your content for, for quite some time now, and uh, I've been enjoying your, your tweets and insights that you've been sharing before I ever really looked into or knew who you were. Um, recently, you actually shared your story in a, a post you published called The Hard Work for the Oversubscribed, which I think was back in, in January, um, which was an, included an incredible story about your own journey and your achievements. Um, and so for those folks that don't know you, could you give us a quick summary of your career leading up to, to work life and what you're doing now? Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit more about my background. So I had started out, uh, grew up in Northeast Ohio. I started college when I was in high school, so I couldn't wait to get out and uh, studied journalism and also took some computer science classes of initially thinking like, how do I build my own websites and how do I think about what then became more front-end web development and which, which served as a great platform for me to invest in, in companies like Webflow later on. And so with a journalism degree and with, uh, with the ability to code, um, I ended up 
at Expedia, um, primarily uh, working across our core product um, first as, as a product manager and then scaled into a more head of social media role. And head of social was interesting there where it was a, it was a great combination of performance marketing, so leading um, SEO, SEM, and paid Facebook, um, plus this great piece of customer support. So really uh, getting to know the Zendesk ecosystem very well on this as, as a buyer of a lot of SaaS applications. And then the third thing was really thinking about like great internal tools and, and thinking about companies like Expedia to which there's a number of different um, sub companies and different platforms and how do you basically, you know, build internal tools and also buy great off the shelf solutions. So over time I became very interested in SaaS. I was running a lot of RFPs and had a lot of visibility in the ecosystem. Um, and in parallel, I was teaching classes at General Assembly. So I started teaching a go-to-market bootcamp, um, taught that for about four years and the interesting thing about that program is it actually became the framework for something I run today called SAS School, um, which is a self-funded and community-led program. Um, it's hosted once a quarter. And the whole vision with SAS School is to really bring together the brightest minds at high growth enterprise companies. So the CTO of Dropbox, the head of product from Slack, great individuals who have scaled inside of these high growth, uh, primarily SaaS companies and bring uh, institutionalize and sort of, you know, bring a lot of that really um, valuable tactical playbooks to early stage companies. And so the way that we do that is uh, we end up seeing around 250 applications each time and we select 30 to 40 entrepreneurs to come to this really robust and intensive um, go to market bootcamp. So some of the companies that I've previously attended have been Notion and Superhuman and Netlify and a lot of these great companies that come very early and then we get to spend a lot of time with them before they raise typically a very large Series A or Series B. And um, in doing that and just spending a lot of time in the ecosystem, you know, I really had this vision for like, can we take this um, SaaS school platform? Can I take the go-to-market experience that I had at Zendesk, which was a combination of self-serve revenue and starting to layer in more repeatable um, you know, differentiated revenue streams, uh, such as live chat and, and, and such as other new product lines. And can we actually productize this, so to speak, and turn it into an early stage fund? So the vision of work life is to reimagine work from the ground up. So we invest in new technologies that touch, you know, every part of the software application stack, every um, team or division within a company. And we're basically um, investing in companies that share this vision where with better software, you know, with better product design, with a more um, consumer-led go-to-market, there's the ability to create a very high-growth company. There's also the ability to really build better tools that better suit today's workers. And I think that's where there's a real difference. Where I think historically, you know, enterprise products have always been built with the CIO or you know the enterprise in mind. And I think now we've reached this inflection point where as people are moving jobs every two years, as people are being very thoughtful with the tools that they're personally using and they're taking them from company to company, um, it's worth having a dedicated fund that solely focuses on people uh, rather than enterprises. So we really focus on great product design, great end user experience and new companies that align to that vision. That's really interesting. That's something I kind of noticed the other day when I was, uh, I think it was either Webflow or Moz or, or one of the, the software that I rely on for my business. And because I recently started a new job and I went back to these uh, to, to these products and 
I already had an account, but the account was with me. It wasn't with my company. And so I can continue with my account with the software and just add a new company and carry on. So it's almost like the, the vendors there have realized that their relationship is with the user and that, you know, the person is, is inevitably going to change and move over time. So let's maintain the relationship with the individual and, and keep that going throughout companies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I like to call it BYOT. So I think it's this idea where people actually bring their own tech to work. And I see this specifically with um, individuals that are more remote or distributed where, you know, essentially when you join a company, you know, you buy the laptop, maybe they reimburse you, you get to pick the tools and you get a lot more flexibility and autonomy. So I do think that in the future, we'll continue to see increasingly every part of the you know work stack will increasingly be very much self-serve and very much something that you personally can take from company to company i think webflow is a good example where i think even on the teams plan it's basically creating a shared space where you can add and remove users but knowing that like especially like if you're like me and you love design you'll never just be working on one particular project tied to work. You're likely dabbling on evenings and weekends or helping friends and family launch their own websites as well. So I think having that flexibility in the platform where people can experiment and have their own personal side projects, in addition to having that business account where, you know, it's tied to their employer. Mm. So what, what is it about this space of, let's just say the future of work that, that's so compelling for you personally? Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a point in time where, you know, I had really thought about what mark do I want to leave on the world? And I remember um, this was when I had first joined Zendesk. And initially, the, the reason that I joined Zendesk was because they had such a great company culture. So if you're based in San Francisco, you always hear like Zendesk is a great place to work. They have, you know, women on the board. They have an amazing CEO. They, you know, part of the the real um, you know, part of the culture is tied very much to giving back to the cities in which there are offices. So the office is in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which is, you know, an area that could use a lot of um, public volunteering and could use a lot more public services. And I think Zendesk really solves that gap for a lot of people in the community. And so when I thought about building work life, I'm like, what if we could reimagine work with not only better software, but with better companies? And I think if you look throughout the work-life portfolio, whether it's Webflow, which also shares a lot of very similar cultural attributes to Zendesk, where it is very inclusive, it's a very friendly, high-growth startup for parents and new moms. And uh, you know, we uh, we had uh, someone who was actually leading diversity and inclusion um, in addition to her full-time job. So um, she was recently promoted internally as the head of diversity and inclusion. So I think there's just a lot of really goodness to these types of applications where I think in a lot of ways, you know, Webflow is removing um, code as a barrier, which only 0.05% you know, of the world know how to code. So it's actually creating these new applications where anyone can become better at their job. And I think at the end of the day, you know, every work-life company shares the same vision where it's not necessarily about the, the, the tech or the software itself. More, more importantly, it's about the individuals who use it. And can we actually make these individuals better at their job? Hmm, interesting. So, okay. In the top broader topic of uh, future of work, then there's, there's a number of themes that, that I'd like to dive into. And let's start with the most obvious where I think most people think about future of work. The first thing that comes to mind is 
remote work or flexible work or, or working from home. Um, so beyond the obvious, from your point of view, what do you think is still the most underappreciated uh, trait or, or virtue of, of flexible working from home? What, what do you think that people still don't really get? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I think one stat that always comes top of mind is that 70% of people globally work from home at least one day a week. So I think in a lot of ways, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, there's this thought that, you know, remote and distributed teams are a new concept. And I think this is one area where actually um, it's been a long time practice for Fortune 500s and the major consulting firms anyway. So I think a lot of companies that have, you know, a uh, sort of a, a client relationship or, um, you know, high travel um, sort of roles, especially like management consulting. I think in a lot of ways, the big companies are a lot further ahead in, in the documentation and the processes and what it actually takes to be very good at remote work. So what I think is actually changing, I think today, it's like when you look at what has historically been a blocker for a lot of these, these remote roles and inflexible work, I think there's been a few things. I think the first thing is that the technology was never quite good enough. So I think until we had Zoom and until we had a real viable video option, in a lot of ways, um, you know, it, it was historically much more challenging to truly work from anywhere and to truly feel connected to your team. I think today that's changing quite a bit. Um, I think there's a lot of new solutions where you can have amazing video technology. I see a lot where there are companies that have a real like telepresence. Like I'm an investor in a company called Tandem, which essentially um, replicates a real office. So it's a virtual uh, workspace, meaning that you have that ability to have it on throughout the day. You have the ability to just jump in a, in a shared sort of water cooler space where you can quickly have a conversation or have a chat with someone because I think long-term loneliness will be a concern. I think that people are inherently very productive. And I think that one of the interesting things is um, when you read a lot of uh, studies about remote work, you know, I think the lack, like a lack of productivity or, or a lack of, you know, being in a different environment is not the problem. People will actually cite that being lonely or overworking actually becomes the problem. Because I think in a lot of ways, when you optimize your workspace for like purely productivity, then you miss out on some of the goodness such as office birthdays or quick conversations in the morning and a lot of these little passive things that happen throughout the day that help you have a great day and help you have a great culture. So I think that there's a lot of new solutions that we'll have to build and solve for. Um, I think now that we have the baseline uh, technology, then we'll be able to start layering in more programs and services that make work even more enjoyable, even if you're remote. Awesome. And uh, interestingly, of course, uh, as one person on Twitter put it, we're in the middle of the biggest work from home experiment of all time right now, because as we record this, it's what, March 9th. Um, so obviously the coronavirus is on, on everyone's mind. More people are working from home, I guess, today than any other day in history. Um, we don't know how that will pan out, um, but short of asking you to predict uh, what happens in the coronavirus, I did want to ask you, what do you think or hope will change about work when this blows over and people have been exposed to working from home and, and working more flexibly for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I think right now we are in this, you know, period of experimentation. I, I noticed this trend specifically about, you know, 12, 18 months ago where a lot more um, individuals were taking remote more seriously. I think especially new parents, uh, caregivers, you know, a large percentage of people in the world, 
especially people over the age of 45 are caring for an aging parent or potentially caring for a sick spouse. So I think in a lot of ways, like remote work is making the workplace a lot more inclusive and human long-term. So I think that that will open up the discussion where as people are working from home due to coronavirus or any other, you know, sort of urgent circumstance that comes up, I think it does give us a little bit more balance, hopefully. Um, but I will say in a lot of ways, like as, as remote work becomes more mainstream, I think that the way companies typically, you know, some of the concerns that companies have long-term is how engaged can employees really be long-term. I think what it does and something that I find to be very exciting is I think that in a lot of ways, if anything, remote work will actually reinvent neighborhoods. And what I mean by that is rather than, you know, in Silicon Valley in particular, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for individuals to have breakfast, lunch, dinner, and coffees throughout the day at their employer-funded amazing cafeteria. And I think one of the concerns there is you actually see that, you know, a lot of the local businesses in San Francisco really suffer during lunchtime because we don't have a lunch culture. And so I think in a lot of ways, um, there's been some amazing programs. Um, I recently visited Tulsa, Oklahoma, and they have one of the most advanced uh, remote um, programs that, I, that I've seen in a really long time, where essentially, if you're a tech worker and you move to Tulsa, there's a relocation stipend, there's really affordable housing, they have this amazing program where basically you have everything from food trucks to farm to table to this whole entire ecosystem that they've built. Um, and if you're working at a, a GitHub, an Envision, um, a GitLab, a fully distributed company, then you can basically live anywhere and you're getting around the same pay as San Francisco. However, you're enjoying the quality of life and maybe a different change of pace in an area like Tulsa. So I think we, we're, we're so early in, the, in, the, uh, in, in where remote work can go. And I think we'll start to see some really interesting and experimental models where people are choosing new types of neighborhoods, people are choosing new types of cities, and people are a little bit more flexible and sort of where they want to end up long term. That's brilliant. I mean, it really can. I was thinking the other day, like, I wonder, you know, how much pollution is being saved by people not traveling to work at the moment. And all of the other benefits that you realize as well. I mean, uh, you know, you're saving money on on transport on gas on buying fancy new clothes. I saw a tweet from a woman saying about how much money she saved on makeup since she's remote worked remotely because she doesn't, you know, doesn't need to worry about it as much or more. Um, yeah, really got an opportunity to make a fantastic difference. Okay, so that's remote work. Um, what are some of the other biggest sort of trends or topics within your thesis for the future of work or some of the sort of categories that you see? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that in a lot of ways, um, we are seeing a reinvention of the entire tech stack team by team. And it's been really interesting to see, I mean, especially at Seed and Series A, uh, good ideas really come in bunches. So you'll find that when one you know, large company lays the foundation for one thing, you'll then see that second level of companies come up. So I think a great example is I do see a lot in the, the data and infrastructure space. So you have companies like Segment um, that have done an exceptional job of getting data all in one place. Now we're seeing like, what are the core components and things that you can build now that you have all of your data in one place? So I'm seeing a lot of companies that are you know, helping everything from early stage startups to identify which core metrics can help them find product market fit. So I invested in a company called Viable.fit and it's basically creating a product market fit score 
and productizing a lot of these questions that we have as far as how often do we, you know, email and message and engage with our core users to really determine what that product market fit score looks like. And that scales all the way up to, you know, that's kind of starting on the, on the startup side of things. I've also seen some really great work around, like when you think about data and especially, you know, if you're at a larger company, one of the interesting things that happens is you end up acquiring other companies and you have to figure out how do you consolidate and, and map all of their data. There's just a lot where now that we have segment, which pulls everything together, I'm seeing a whole ecosystem of amazing data tools that help, you know, individual teams identify which metrics they should be tracking, you know, ways for us to really create some more like data automation that way, you know, individuals don't have to run SQL. Cause I think there's been a lot of ways where like a lot of, in the same way that, you know, very few people know how to code. There's also these, all, all these other sort of very complex processes where if we can remove some of the technical components, we can free up every team to run their own queries and to you know, build their own data sets and start to model things out in a way which is a lot faster if you know how to do it, but then also um, a lot more efficient and better and self-sufficient if you don't know how to do it. Mm, that makes sense. So let's go from there into uh, the, the trend of no code, which is something that you've um, written about and published some great opinions on um, in, in recent days and, and weeks. So what does no code mean in the big picture um, for, let, let's just start from different companies, from startups through to enterprises? Yeah, sure. So no code is the removal of code as a barrier. And when you think about no code, it's not really something that's entirely new. So if you look at Wix, Squarespace, a lot of the no code 1.0 solutions were essentially the ability to build your own websites using pre-existing templates or predefined templates uh, created by someone else. Um, my, you know, my, my favorite example of no code is Excel you know, one of the most enduring um, pieces of software that all of us have had some exposure to. I think, you know, if you think about Microsoft Excel, its ability to um, create a very lightweight and easy to use database is something that has become, you know, the core foundation for many uh, jobs and functions that have existed for years. And so I think now we're entering this world where as people are becoming increasingly technical, and now as there are, you know, amazing self-serve videos available online, there's, there's something to be said for just people as a whole are becoming more technical. It doesn't mean that everyone knows how to code. In fact, most of us don't know how to code. But I think in a lot of ways, you know, there are new applications like Webflow as an example, where it's taking, you know, the, the same concept of a Wix or Squarespace but then it's also really giving you the flexibility to fully customize it, to um, you know, have production ready code and to you know, basically remove the need for a developer if you're inside of a large company. So in theory, you should be able to you know, hand over control to a great product designer, to a marketer, to someone who you know, feels bad or has a hard time getting engineering resources to do their job well. And you can actually hand over some of that work where essentially they feel more empowered to create their own web experiences. It also frees up the engineer to focus on other things as well. 
Mm. So it's kind of lowering the barrier for, for code for um, anything from prototyping really all the way through to a production ready uh, product as well. And so w- what does that mean? Um, if the barrier comes down, it becomes easier to enter, but then there's more competition. And so that creates more of a, presumably creates more of a, a pressure and importance on having the right designers, the right marketers and everything else. I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think right now for where we're at in the ecosystem, I mean, good ideas definitely come in bunches. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, the question when I meet companies is not, are they technically capable? It's typically, do they have a distribution advantage? Because if you think about it right now, in so many ways, um, you know, a lot of companies are not the first to come up with this concept. You're usually competing, uh, you're either competing directly with another startup that's around the same size and stage, or you're attempting to displace um, known software that's pretty sticky in an enterprise. And so today the question is always, do you have a unique distribution insight around distribution? And do you have maybe an unfair advantage or access to certain companies? So I think in a lot of ways, you know, the reason that startups typically start more bottom up and start more product led is because if you think about it, especially companies that are based in Silicon Valley, there's not that much access to large enterprises. And I think that it takes, um, you know, a significant amount of time to really get that enterprise flywheel going requires a different set of features. You have to think more about, you know, any security grade features like SOC 2 and all of that kind of stuff which an early stage company just doesn't really have the time, the resources or the budget to truly do enterprise well. So they end up going self-serve and selling purely to other startups, which is a great way to get started. But I think long-term what you'll find is like as a company attempts to move up market, that's where you want to understand exactly to what extent they have enterprise relationships existing. They have a unique insight where they can actually move up market. And I think in a lot of ways, this is something where you know, SaaS school was built for that specific problem in mind, where you typically have two very product-minded, amazing engineer co-founders. So the question is never, can you build it? The question is, to what extent can you move faster on, a, on the go-to-market side of things and have a real distribution advantage where you can move faster than, you know, your competitors? Mm. And a slightly different take on that that you've published as well is the importance of a design founder. Tell us more about that point of view. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I take a very biased stance on this. I, uh, you know, having been at Zendesk and, you know, having three Danish co-founders and a, a, a CDO, a chief design officer, I think that brand and great design has always been a differentiator for Zendesk. And I think that what's interesting is like, while customer support is, you know, a large enough segment to support a, a platform like Zendesk, a... I would say a fast follow like Freshdesk or Freshworks, you know, new applications like Front, which is a shared inbox for Teams, Customer with a K, which is basically going in a a very specific segment, which started with retail e-commerce. I think in a lot of ways, like these enterprise segments or, you know, buyers that you're selling to, oftentimes these markets are large enough to support a number of players. I think what's interesting is when you look at tools that people love. And when you look at the ones that tend to become great places to work and become, you know, a known product for the category, oftentimes these are the more design led companies where you are both building a great end user experience and you deeply care about your customers. 
And in parallel, like that same sort of design DNA does ultimately impact your company culture where it's like having that real like customer centricity matters, having a real um, point of view on product and where you're differentiated matters. And I think long-term that actually builds a great place to work. Yeah. Cause it's less about, um, what your IT department demands that you must use and more about finding the right products and services that people want to use and then having them sell bottom up through the enterprise, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think right now, I mean, what's interesting is you'll end up seeing because individuals are moving jobs so frequently to have a champion that can take your product from, from one to the next every 12 to 18 months, that actually becomes something that's really quite compelling where I think that in a lot of ways, especially early stage SaaS companies, like really understanding what a strong land and expand strategy would look like is really important because you can actually use people leaving one company and going to the next as an acquisition source and as a real competitive advantage if they know and love your product enough to, to keep using it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so with this lowering of the barrier of technology to enter business, does this in any way diminish the the role of a technical founder or the 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 high salary commanded by a developer or does it just shift to a different function or change in any way or or how do you see that working yeah it's a great question so when i think about developer productivity and and where the world is going i think in a lot of ways the way that i view no code and the way that i think about even apis in the workplace is oftentimes it's not that you're replacing the demand for code if anything you're actually replacing um you're you're replacing what would potentially be you know weeks to a month's worth of work you're replacing it with better quality less code so in a lot of ways you know developers have embraced open source they've embraced apis because at the end of the day developers want to be better at their job and they want to be as efficient as possible so if you're able to stitch together you know, great um, open source projects, APIs, off-the-shelf technology, where you're actually getting access to cleaner, better code. In a lot of ways, that makes the job for a developer much more enjoyable. Because what's interesting, and and this is part of the, the thesis of work life, is a lot of the companies that we invest in tend to be um, things that engineers don't want to build anyway. So, you know, I recently invested in a company that's doing um, billing architecture as a service. And so if you talk to any engineers, they'll tell you the last thing that you want to work on and typically the first thing that you put an intern on is billing. And it's because it's something that no one actually sees, you know, it impacts like pricing and and it becomes a, it's a core part of the, the revenue part of the business. It's a less interesting problem to work on and it's not a shiny feature that you're going to get praised for. So I think in a lot of ways, you know, many of the work-life companies, they look like enterprise readiness as a service. They look like billing architecture as a service. And there are a lot of these parts of the product where essentially engineers don't want to build them because they're not going to get praised for them. And it's not something that consumers will see out in the wild. And so in a lot of ways, if we can remove the need for companies to actually build those, it frees individuals up to work on much more interesting work. So it's actually an accelerant then it's taken away some of the monotony and enabling you to focus instead on things which are more innovative and and deliver greater progress to the company. Yeah, for sure. And I think in a lot of ways, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, I love looking at companies like Zapier and Airtable and ones where they already have a baseline of 
integrations and recipes and templates and ways for you to be much faster at work. I think in a lot of ways, there are typically very developer friendly equivalents that go a lot deeper on the feature set and on some of the, um, the ability to customize as per certain use cases. So I think in a lot of ways, like the, the whole no code thesis is more around removing things that are potentially complex to build or just quite frankly, removing things that engineers don't want to build. And that helps make work life more enjoyable. It helps developers actually solve really meaningful problems that they care about a lot. And you'll be surprised, but a lot of these features that, you know, individual developers don't want to build, you know, companies are super excited to be like the leader in the space. Like if you look at a company like Plaid, you know, Plaid is world-class in what they do. Um, you know, they dominate the market and have all, you know, mind share. And I think in a lot of ways, that is a repeatable model where we'll start to see there's going to be a lot of use cases where it's like the developer first tool will actually have consumer awareness because as you log into different mobile applications and you connect your bank account, it says powered by Plaid. So I think in a lot of ways, like people are getting exposed to a lot of these new technologies. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, being able to solve a very specific problem for you know, um, some of the world's smartest developers is a great place to be. Okay, so let's level up a little bit from no code specifically and think about the larger domain of, of the future of work. What are some of the ways that this changes the, the career opportunities of an individual person? Um, does this sort of challenge more of the assumptions that, that we would have been told by our parents about what a prosperous career looks like over, over the long term? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, we, we as people and as, you know, working professionals, I think that there is a lot more pressure on individuals to deliver the careers that they want. And I see this specifically um, with developers, with designers, with a lot of folks that are inside of tech companies, where essentially there's more and more pressure to contribute to open source to dabble on evenings and weekends and create your own design projects. And I spend a lot of time in these various different communities. Um, I was an angel investor in Dev.2, which is a social network for software engineers. You know, I spend a lot of time on Dribbble. Um, even Webflow and Figma have their own communities where people can open source and share and comment on their work. So I think in a lot of ways, like individuals are building really strong networks across different companies and they're sort of transcending what they're doing from nine to five into this personal brand or into this, you know, real value aligned view of their career, where I see this as a lot, especially for, um, you know, individuals that are one or two years out of college. I'm so surprised by how much already they're blogging and building a public persona and, you know, really thinking through beyond what they're working on day to day, like what stake do they want to put in the ground as far as like their expertise and like their specialization. So I think in a lot of ways, like irrespective of whether you have the founder title, I think in future, everyone is a founder. You know, they're a founder of their own podcast. They're the founder of a side project that they've built on evenings and weekends. And I think in a lot of ways, like that's actually really creating a much better ecosystem because I think it makes it much more inclusive. Like I think at this point in time, you know, you'll meet, you connect with people extensively over ideas. And I think Twitter is a great place to do that. You know, I also see this on, um, you know, some new sites as well, where it just feels like we're entering a world where if you're 
truly a self-starter. I think that you can easily hop from one team to another, from a small company to a big company, from a big company to a small company. I think work is becoming increasingly flexible. And now the question is, to what extent can we actually build progr programs and services to make that possible across, you know, healthcare and, you know, um, I see a lot of new applications for freelancers to pick up extra projects. So I think the question is like, while people really want flexible work, the question is, can we actually meaning, meaningfully deliver programs and services that make that possible? Mm. And what does all that mean for the companies that need to hire talent and retain their best talent? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that from, from a large company standpoint, I think that they're, you know, there will always be demand to work at known companies for a while. And I think that it's oftentimes like this is an area where I was very fortunate and I loved my time at Expedia. I felt like there's, you know, as a company starts to mature, they layer in, you know, education programs. There's more of a T and E spend and you can go and take courses. You end up having a little bit more of a mentorship model at large companies. So I think some of the best tech individuals that I meet had spent, you know, maybe two years at Microsoft, two years at Facebook or LinkedIn. Like, I think it's a great place to just start your career to really learn some systems and processes before you go to the really early stage. Um, so I think that is one path. I think in a lot of ways, though, you know, the model that I'm seeing more and more is once you've done something exceptionally well or once you become known for something, there is so much opportunity to either you know, become a consultant, become a, a freelancer, like start to build your own presence and really come up with your own portfolio to which you can operate across a number of companies. I see this a lot in the, in, in, in sort of the, the SaaS ecosystem where it's like, if you were really early at Dropbox or you spent quite a lot of time at Slack, rather than jumping into that next company, oftentimes folks will take time off. They consult across a number of companies. Like there's just new ways to think about you know, the portfolio of companies that you work with. And I think there are new ways to think about your career where it enables more flexibility depending on your life choices. So this can enable a person to actually accelerate their own career, but presumably it also allows people to have a fruitful career where one couldn't have existed previously at all. So if you have now uh, tools that make it easier for you to create a product, easier to get your product out into the world through marketing and growth, um, and also reach a niche audience, but on a global scale, um, then that creates the opportunity to have a career that, that you never could have had before. Um, I, I read a, a piece recently, I think it was uh, Lee Jin who wrote a, a piece called The Passion Economy. Um, are you familiar with that, that topic? Could you talk yeah, a bit more about absolutely. that? Yeah. So I think the passion economy is, is really great. I, um, you know, I think this is about a year and a half ago, I wrote a piece on the new American dream and this concept that, you know, as work becomes more flexible, as we have new technologies and new ways of, um, thinking about our creative expression, there's a whole class of new types of work and individuals who essentially, you know, use their evenings and weekends to really um, develop a specific craft and use that craft to, um, you know, have their own distribution and build a, a loyal following. And I think what's interesting is like the following doesn't have to be that big. I think oftentimes people assume it has to do with followers, but you know, when I look at new platforms like Teachable or Podia or, you know, any of these ones where essentially you can monetize 
um, your thoughts or your experience or a service um, that can be done virtually. Oftentimes it's, uh, you know, the more niche, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I was recently talking with the founder of Teachable and he was telling me how some of the, um, you know, some of the individuals that make the most on the platform and, and Teachable is the ability to, to build and monetize your own courses, um, which really spoke to me because I had previously taught at General Assembly. So this is a whole new world where you can do the GA model, but on a global scale. And um, some of the top creators are, you know, moms who are experts on um, developing homeschool curriculum, you know, as people are thinking about distributed work and moving to new locations or potentially, you know, um, if you're in an area where the public school system is not um, a place where you want your kids to attend, can you actually learn from a mom that's world-class and has developed her own curriculum and really deeply understands like the world that is modern homeschooling? And so I think there are all of these new classes of work where whether it's VIP kid, where you can virtually tutor kids online, whether it's teachable, where you can get really creative and come up with your own subject matter expertise, or even, you know, whether it's hosting your own experience on Airbnb experiences, I think that people are getting increasingly creative. And I think that in a lot of ways, like there's just such a unique opportunity and and an amazing moment in time where you can actually monetize these skills that quite frankly might come very naturally. You know, you might just be amazing at hosting dinner parties or love your neighborhood and want to give a tour. And now you can actually make money and and make pretty, um, you know, life-changing money for a lot of individuals in this way. And you mentioned earlier about people collaborating around those passion areas as well. And I think you'd written in the past that the open source idea is is moving now out of out of tech, out of development or software development into other areas. What, what are some examples of that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, um, open source has really created a... Um, has really created a, an ideology that scales far beyond software engineering. I think this concept that individuals can learn from each other and in, individuals can build on each other's ideas is something that's really transformational for the world. And this is something that I see a lot, um, especially with um, productivity tools and you know vertical specific software where people can collaborate either you know real time or asynchronously. Um, Like I'm an investor in a company called Pietra, which is a marketplace for creators to launch their own fine jewelry lines. And part of that is actually building this network where, you know, you can actually get to the point where when you're a world-class creator, you actually just want to learn from others and you want to learn from other creators and you can build on each other's ideas. And there's kind of this central theme throughout the work-life portfolio companies where whether it's Pietra and you're doing that for fine jewelry, whether that's Webflow and you're doing that as a designer, as a way to get more views on your work or to have individuals clone your template and use it at their own company. I think in a lot of ways we're seeing that open source is a great strategy for you know, sharing your work, giving other individuals the ability to build on top of it. And then building this reputation where you actually become a very sought after individual and you can use that to, to scale it into your own meaningful um, work long-term. Hmm. Um, and so then you, you also mentioned earlier about uh, some of these founders that have gone on to be very successful in their 
uh, in their startups that they've built, then wanting to give back to the community uh, and also becoming angel investors themselves. And, and you've published a point of view about how this is uniquely valuable to, to other startups. So talk a little bit more about your idea of um, operator angel funds. For sure. Yeah, I think, you know, when I, um, you know, when I was teaching classes at General Assembly, I really met a lot of early stage founders who at the time were raising from friends and family and were, you know, a little bit less strategic in how they thought about getting that first maybe one to five million dollars where essentially it would come from many different sources. You know, sometimes it's coming from it from a traditional seed fund. Sometimes it's coming from you know, previous coworkers or, 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 or friends in, in your network. And I think what's interesting now is I think that in a lot of ways, historically, the first round of funding or the friends and family round was exclusive to people who had rich friends and family. And I think that's where the real problem came into play, where you would talk to individuals in Silicon Valley, or if you went to Harvard or Stanford, or you have a, a high net worth um, sort of network, these individuals had no problem raising a pre-seed round because they had friends and they had access to capital to which, you know, folks like myself who grew up in Northeast Ohio, like, you know, I just didn't grow up or ever meet a venture capitalist until I was, you know, in my late twenties and, and early thirties. So I think what's interesting is now we're actually seeing this model where um, angels are, you know, director level and above operators at amazing tech companies they're getting very specific with how they help companies and you know oftentimes publishing on twitter and saying these are these are the five ways that i help companies these are the types of companies that i'm looking for and they're basically creating this beacon where anyone that's building a company in this space can reach out to them they can get office hours they can get help getting into yc or in a, in another accelerator if that's the path they want to choose but most importantly, they get plugged into this really relevant network where you have a single point person with great operating experience. You get access to, you know, their um, great network of folks at, at a, a sector online company or a company where maybe you want them to be a future customer. So I think in a lot of ways, early stage is becoming incredibly open. Um, it's becoming a lot more strategic because rather than relying on um, rich friends and family or, you know, potentially going to institutional investors too soon where the expectations are different. In a lot of ways, early stage founders and, you know, people who are inside of tech companies who are thinking about starting something, they have the benefit of leaning on operators who are either scouts for other VC funds, they're angels that write 25K checks, but they're the most helpful 25K checks on the cap table. Or there's like this new breed of um, solo GPs and micro funds that, you know, work life is included in this, where we act as almost supercharged angels, where we have a great network of LPs and those are folks that can be incredibly helpful. And then we are the single point person. And in addition to capital, we come with a very specific value prop. Amazing. Okay, so we're talking about a future here where barriers to entry are coming down right across the board. Everything's happening faster. People are collaborating with each other, learning faster, building their own careers. I wonder if you think that that makes something like the lean startup more or less valuable? And do you see more use of a kind of a scientific, scientific evidence-based approach in the companies you're seeing or, or less or, or which? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that if we were going to go back six months ago, I think that the ecosystem was quite different to where it is today. 
And I will say that um, in a lot of ways, you know, over the last 12 months, it feels like early stage companies have really lost their way when it comes to lean startup methodologies. And so there's a few examples there. I think the first one comes from startups that are overcapitalized. And in the last six to 12 months, we've seen, you know, repeat founders, well-networked individuals, folks that can easily go out and raise at potentially a 30 to 40 million post with uh, some product, very little product, but definitely pre-revenue. And so I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, we had a lot of founders that were spinning out of companies. Uh, Stripe is a great example. Um, Uber is a great example. You have these very entrepreneurial cultures where the individuals are exceptional operators, however, yet fairly unproven founders. However, we were in an environment where capital was freely flowing. Uh, founders could go out and raise at a pretty high valuation um, with little to no product. And so I think that in a lot of ways, um, that, is, that will start to shift. And I think especially like considering where we at, we're at like today, I think that it'll be interesting to see to what extent um, these companies are going to be able to meet investor expectations over the next six to 12 months. And to what extent will they be able to incrementally, uh, you know, raise their valuation at the next round? Um, I think for many of them, we may potentially see flat or nearly flat uh, next rounds. So I think that there's a lot of considerations there where it's like, you know, on the fundraising side of things, um, I think that I'm seeing a, a shift where I'm seeing a shift today where companies are exploring new types of funding models. Um, I've actually invested in three that are very much specifically tied to new capital sources and new funding models specifically for SaaS companies. And the vision there is, can you actually create new models where essentially you can pre-qualify your customers for better rates. You can turn your MRR into ARR, and that's a company called Pipe. Um, I've looked at, you know, what are new models for accounts payable, and how do we make it much better for companies to think about the way they're reporting against core metrics of the business? How do we make sure that we're paying freelancers on time? Because keep in mind that a core part of your brand and a core part of, you know, what people perceive about you is how you treat your employees and how you treat your contracted employees. So I think that in a lot of ways, you know, the criticisms that Uber and Lyft have faced over the years, I do see that coming for software companies. Um, as you continue, as we scale and start hiring more freelance developers, freelance designers, like there's this shift to, to move everyone or to move a large percentage of the workforce over to freelance. And I think in those ways, that's when you're, you know, the, the real reputation of your company is built uh, if you can pay your freelancers and contractors on time. Um, the one thing that I think that's really interesting from a lean startup standpoint is from a go-to-market standpoint, a lot of software companies have historically launched with an MVP. They've gone out, they've acquired new users, they've you know, rapidly iterated and continued to build momentum with this sort of hypothesis that they had. In a lot of ways, I, I haven't seen that over the last six months. In a lot of, in many cases, I do see companies that potentially cherry pick two or three design partners and design partners, meaning you will proactively go to a couple startups in your network. 
you will ask the founder to, to invest potentially, or you'll find ways to have real strategic alignment and you'll build alongside just a couple of other companies. And uh, I think that that actually presents a really interesting challenge because you potentially have less rich customer development. And what can happen quite easily is you essentially hand the fate of your own company over to early companies, to peers, to unproven founders themselves. And you also run the risk of potentially um, over-indexing on feedback from just a couple of sources. Hmm. So I think in a lot of ways, like we are, we're overcapitalizing our startups. We're over-indexing on the feedback from, from two or three people and maybe a couple of investors. And so I think in a lot of ways, like there will be new models in this new economic climate where companies will need to iterate faster. I think that we'll have to go broader on our customer development and really go deeper on to what extent can we monetize the software that we're building? Because I think both on the investor side and just from a capital efficiency standpoint, I think that the expectations will change and we'll need to get to revenue faster. Mm, Makes sense. Okay, so I wanted to ask you for a few predictions in the form of advice, because I know that uh, predictions are often scary, but I know that you're not afraid of, of, of sticking your neck out and making a few. So I wanted to know, based on your perspective and insight that you have into how business and work is evolving, if you could advise a startup, an enterprise, a government, a charity, and a high school kid, lastly, and we'll go through them one at a time, what would you advice would you give them that they might do differently if they could know the future that you could see? So starting with a startup. Yeah, I think with startups, I mean, there is, there's a new model that is quite aligned with the lean startup best practices where, you know, for the majority of pitches that I see every day, which are primarily pre-seed and seed stage companies, In a lot of ways, before you ever write a line of code, um, there are some exceptional founders that are using prototypes in Figma to both get feedback from early users, to pitch investors. I think today, um, individuals are being much more thoughtful with um, the way that they, the, the time that they put into writing code, just because, you know, as an investor in Webflow, I see this a lot where new startups, um, nonprofits, amazing companies are built using Webflow because it's quite easy. Um, in that same way, I think that if you are building a high growth software company or if you do plan to raise venture capital, then starting with a prototype first then removes a lot of the, um, it removes a lot of the time and money and uh, resource constraints that come with, with going straight to code. Gotcha. Okay. So what about an enterprise um, facing this, you know, ever accelerating speed and agility uh, coming from startups and then also people that are embracing the future of work? What does it mean for an enterprise? Yeah, I think for enterprise, I mean, there's a lot of amazing work that's being done around um, intercompany learnings. And I think that's something where historically, um, I love the open source example, because I think oftentimes we immediately think of open source as individuals who contribute and they're almost like these lone people that do it from home 
And I think in a lot of ways that sort of hacker stereotype is dead. And what I do see more of is that, you know, there are um, amazing open source contributors inside of medium to large companies where they may be contributing on evenings and weekends or, or they may just be doing it in their free time as more of a passion project. However, um, you know, there's so much inner company learnings and this future that's very much um, reliant on, you know, leveraging best in class tools, where I think in a lot of ways, like there's just a whole category of, you know, initiatives and programs and really foundational parts of uh, a large company's tech stack where it's much more efficient to buy off the shelf and use clean, better code than to potentially, um, you know, spend the time and the internal resources to build it yourself. Gotcha. And does this apply to governments as well? How should government organizations and employees think about what this future of work as you see it means for them? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for, for, for government agencies, um, I probably see that a little bit less from a software standpoint. I think a lot of the, the same best practices can be true around, you know, how you engage with your customers and how you build more automated workflows and to what extent you're able to send, um, you know, great educational emails to, to individual stakeholders. I think what's interesting on the government side is I do see a lot of very, um, politically aligned startups. And I think right now there's a lot happening in clean energy. There's a lot happening in sort of, um, you know, SaaS for um, public good. And I think that in a lot of ways, even, you know, in an era post WeWork or in an era where, you know, people have questions around SoftBank, I think the TLDR there and my optimistic view is that whether it's WeWork, which has made remote work possible and giving, you know, given people space in, you know, almost every major city to Uber, which has brought, you know, meaningful, um, you know, job opportunities for anyone who has a car. And now I think we're seeing some, some new, more innovative models. Um, you know, I love this company called Cul-de-Sac, which the founder was previously at Open Door. And the whole vision is to um, reimagine neighborhoods from scratch. So building carless communities where individuals have access to great housing, great modern services. Like this is the type of place you can imagine there would be a soul cycle and a juice bar and like everything that a, you know, a young person or, um, you know, even in an active uh, retiree would want in a, in a very walkable community. And I think in a lot of ways, that's where the future of work is heading is like people want more flexibility. They want to work from new locations. They potentially want to work from home, especially if they're a new parent or, um, you know, taking care of an aging parent or, uh, you know, oftentimes they hear if you're someone who identifies as being a little bit more introvert. I think we're creating more inclusive workspaces by letting people work from home and then reimagining the neighborhoods around us. And I think in a lot of ways that will come from supporting local businesses, from having walkable communities and from really uh, reimagining, you know, I think a lot about even how do you make the neighborhood more enjoyable, such as, um, you know, LA has, has recently relaxed their regulation around street vendors. 
So this idea of if you're working from home, can you step outside and have amazing street tacos or local vendors and sort of pop-ups where we're actually creating new opportunities for folks that want to start their own restaurant, uh, but don't want to have the real estate and, and sort of the capital intensive nature of the business. They actually just want to do pop-ups. So I think we'll start seeing a lot of these new models where it's like, as people are becoming more creative and as even hourly work is becoming more creative, we'll start to see um, you know, new technologies and new um, platforms where we can empower um, our, the people in our neighborhood to you know, come up with their own business model and you know, develop a, a kind of put a new spin on an old craft, so to speak. Mm. So last one then, what about a high school kid? If you could speak to the uh, high school age, Brianne, and give us some advice knowing what you know now about the future at work, what, what would you say? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's funny. I started college when I was in high school and couldn't wait to get out. And I think now what's interesting is, you know, I talk to some amazingly exceptional college kids or college dropouts or individuals who've chosen non-traditional education paths. And to be quite honest, they are um, doing exceptionally well, if not better than the, you know, the folks in their cohort who have gone the more traditional path. So I think we're in this world now where if you're interested in a certain topic, you can build expertise in just about anything. Like I think the modern um, sort of education could be, you know, can you watch a class on Teachable? Can you write about the things that you learned in the class? Can you publish it online? Like there's just so much opportunity to become an expert in whatever you want. I think the question is, can you be a little bit ahead of the curve to which you can be an early user on a platform rather than joining once everyone's already done it? And I think that's something where, you know, I've had friends who, we're very early in starting a podcast or very early as a Twitch streamer. And it's like being one of those first few users and like really going all in on something new can really build a, a great foundation for starting something later on. Like, I think that, you know, I look at an entrepreneur that I respect a ton as Justin Khan. And if you look at the success of Twitch, you know, the success of Twitch basically came from Justin's idea of walking around with a video camera and this idea of like, can I actually like live stream and like broadcast my life in a very, you know, reality TV sort of way. And I think there's really something there where I'm seeing this now on TikTok. I'm seeing this now on a lot of new platforms where essentially like if you are excited about a specific topic or, you know, you want to experiment with a new platform that can you know, not easily, but with enough effort and focus and, you know, originality, it can scale into something meaningful. Yeah, and I think your own content is a, uh, a great example of that. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to to read your uh, everything you've published over the last year or so. And um, where can all the listeners find you online to read more and to learn more about you? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Brianne Kimmel. And then I also have a newsletter as well, uh, a weekly newsletter that's on Substack. Um, you, you can subscribe on briannekimmel.com. Awesome. And I always like to ask, how can we help you? So we have a community of entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, um, people that are trying hard to, to create the future of their business and for other people as well. So um, do you, are you looking for uh, more people to apply to Work Life VC? Are you looking to hire people? How can people help you? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I would love to connect with people on Twitter. 
Um, I'm also, I mean, part of the strategy with work life is really building strong alliances with sector aligned CEOs. So I have a really great network. Um, everyone from, you know, Eric Wan from Zoom, um, Clark Wahlberg from Envision, and just a great network of amazing CEOs. And I think now part of it is starting to think through how do I build the network with other types of operators? And I think, you know, to the extent that I can meet folks from every different job title, I think that's always helpful because you never know when uh, you start looking at a particular company or once portfolio companies have questions, I think building a, you know, a broad but mighty network can be one of the most um, helpful things for early stage companies who are looking to get more, more feedback and, and looking to get plugged in with them. Um, people who uh, have deep expertise. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time and all of your insights with us. Um, I think that was super valuable. Um, I know I enjoyed it and I hope everyone else did too. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Great. And thank you everyone for listening. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember to subscribe to get the new episodes. If you have any suggestions, feedback, or would like to discuss the content, you can find us on Twitter at Lean Startup. And do also please feel free to contact me directly at Guesto on Twitter or slash Chris Guest on LinkedIn. Until next time, take care and bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. We also have a blog that goes along with this episode at leanstartup.co. If you're seeking to bring the entrepreneurial spirit to your organization, Lean Startup Company can help by providing training, coaching, and consulting services. To learn more, visit us at leanstartup.co or find us on Twitter at Lean Startup. Thanks for joining us.